0: to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And
1: today we are talking with Dr. Jill Grimes about what parents should do the summer between their child's senior year of high school and first year of college, or wherever their post-high school ventures are taking them. But before we talk to her, we're going to talk about our experience with I guess our own selves, if we remember that summer, but also with our kids, because all of our kids have left for college. And I'm assuming that, you know, each one had a slightly different experience for you, Steph. I know I did. So
0: what's the one that stands out for you? Probably the one that stands out is the most recent one because it was last summer. So that's a little easier to remember. I think that one was more about trying to figure out the space of trying to give that one space as they were moving toward independence and not feeling like I wanted to protect as much as I could. And it was so different than the other two. One, the first one was so easy, and it's not in retrospect. It's because he was gone all summer. He was at sleepaway camp, and people kept saying, oh— what do you see that summer before? It's so hard. And I'm like, perfect. We'll just ship them away. So we didn't have him here. So he like kind of has to go out of the mix. But then the next one was definitely more like the first, right? Like trying to figure out how do you um, start to let them gain some independence while they're still in your house and you haven't experienced them being away. So it was hard. Like I remember him wanting to be with his friends and feeling like, oh, do we let the curfew go a little later? Do like you know, responding to his, you know, I'm going to be gone in a month or, you know, I'm going to be gone in six weeks or whatever it was.
1: It was really, it was hard. It was hard. I remember that summer and I probably felt that way for each of my kids, even though history should have taught me not to feel this way, but I really wanted there to be (laughs) bonding moments that summer. Like I felt, I felt like I really did feel this separation happening But I thought, like, can't I have a little bit? I don't have to have all of it, but can I have a little bit? Like, can we have something that we do regularly together? Or, you know, like maybe we have a lunch date once a week or something like that. Some of them humored me more with the plan, but none of them actually did it with me. (laughs) So I would say, like, how about, you know, you have four more weeks at home. How about every Tuesday we get lunch together? And they'd be like, okay, mom. (laughs) Okay, nice, mom sure, let's have let's have lunch together. And then it, if it was a Tuesday, they'd be like, oh, did I mention to you I have plans tomorrow? Can't have lunch with you. So, but I never learned because I did it with every single one of them. And I was hopeful every single time. Uh-huh. Less sad more <laughs> I would say that time did give me perspective. Well, it gave me perspective that, that they weren't leaving for good, that they stayed in a relationship with me. Yeah, it's different, but it's not, it's not, it's just different. It's not like it's gone. It's just different. So, but I, I think, um, you know, it's kind of funny to think back that with five opportunities, I mean, I know I did it with the last one. I know I did it with the fourth one. I mean, I literally tried with each one of them to just get a commitment, which was a fraction oh my God. of what Please. I wanted, by the way. <laughs> I wanted so much. But what I was willing to say, like, coffee once a week, 15 minutes in the car to the grocery store with me. Like, I would take nothing and, and still... They were done. They were gone, which is, I guess, a good
0: thing. I know, but I love that because I always think to myself, that's so funny. You and I have never talked about this. I don't think. I'm always like, do you know how small I'm asking this and what I want is this? Like sometimes I think maybe I should have started with more so they could see my movement, but they would have been like, no way. I wouldn't have even. Oh, I think
1: I did that with my firstborn. I did do that with my firstborn. It was clear how alienating it was to be <laughs> so needy. Like, I knew that that was not a good approach. That was like, you are suffocating me, and therefore, I want zero, right? So I got better than the suffocation. But still, it was, yeah, they're not looking at it the same way we're looking at it. I remember saying goodbye, not looking back. Why shouldn't they? I hope they do. I'm glad they did.
0: No, I was going to say the thing you said before, and we have talked about this is about like the relationship. they're not going away forever. and the relationship, you're still their mom. You know, you drop them off at college, you're still their mom. And it does change. So I don't want to make it like, oh, nothing changes. It's not that. But I think in my head, it was going from, you know, a hundred percent to zero. and that that is so not what happens. And I think that, Especially with the first and not knowing what it's gonna look like is so unnerving. Like I think if if there is one thing we could say is like it is gonna change, but you're still their mom. And it's gonna be different. But like I like if it but you have to experience it though. I know why that wouldn't make me feel any better, right? It wouldn't make me feel any better if someone told me.
1: This is one of the things I wanna point out, at least in my life. When you said it's not a hundred to zero, I'm gonna tell you that it's not a hundred. It's not close to 100. So it's not like the zero is, is not true, but so the 100 right. isn't true either. They spent all of high school, they spend their whole childhood pulling away from you. So the this, this summer before when it, it's so heightened and there's so much like lasts going on and, and I want to capture them all and I want it to be a meaningful experience together, they've been pulling away forever. We were not at 100. It wasn't so dramatic. It just in my head, I wrote it as so dramatic. I wrote it as like, I want to capture those moments where they sat in my lap. <laughs> well, guess when that happened? Last, Last. week? <laughs> you know, when they were what, eight, six? I don't know. So that didn't happen for so many years. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm nostalgic for these moments that hadn't happened in years. So it's more like, it's like 60 to 30 is what it goes from. Because they were already at 60. I had one kid who was that kid who didn't like to make phone calls, didn't like to make appointments, really was still heavily reliant on me doing certain things that, you know, it just, it should have been over years before that. And so I finally was like, I gotta figure something out. So could you call and make this appointment for me? And I said, sure, but I want you to sit next to me. So they sat next to me. I said, give me the number. I dialed the number. I put the phone up or whatever, however it was. And then I handed the phone to that kid and said, make the appointment. And at that point, they had no choice. There was nothing they could do. And they were mad at me, like so mad for you know way too long. And I just kept saying, I don't care because you're going to go to college and you're going to need that skill. You're going to need to pick up a phone and make an appointment for yourself. So it wasn't my first. So I was you know tougher. And, and I had other kids that liked me at that moment, so I could let one of them be not liking <laughs> me. <It's, laughs> That's a good one. I a, like it's that. It's always a ratio. It's always kind of like, how many... Well, during COVID, I think five were mad at me and that was unbearable. That I had to I had to find someone to be on my team. It was terrible. The
0: dog. The dog. That's why we have the dog. No,
1: the dog wasn't even mine. It was so sad. I lost it. Okay, them all. that's
0: unacceptable.
1: I know. It was a terrible time. A terrible, terrible time.
0: <gasps> a terrible time. It was the worst of times. Um wait, you just said something I wanted to go back to. Oh, so this other piece I was thinking how you said something about like wanting to have lunch every Tuesday and then they'd be like, Oh, I have plans. You know, like their plans are so fleeting. And like, it was something that drove my husband more than me crazy where they'd be like in high school where they'd be like, they had a plan and they didn't have a plan and like trying to make plans around them. And I wonder if there is a good solution for trying. I hate, I don't like being pinned down. So I get the idea of like, they don't like being pinned down on stuff, but it's like, what would that What would that sound bite be where you'd be like, I want to spend time with you. I don't care if it's lunch, dinner, sitting I know doing what a it puzzle.
1: The, what is it? It is a commitment that requires money spent.
0: That is it. <laughs> oh, right. We Otherwise, did talk about this. On our Yes. Yeah. Otherwise, yes, we it's just, not
1: a commitment. And, and by the way, I know. it's not about Wait, money me.
0: spent by us. Be very clear. Not their money yeah, spent. No, no, I don't mind our money that. money spent. I don't mind that. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. let's, let's no, say I say,
1: you know, reservation at a restaurant. Where do you want to go? They'll be available they're not backing out from that. But the but the truth is the, uh, their plans, they're so fluid. It's like I'm going out tonight. What are you doing? I'm not sure yet. We'll figure it out. That <laughs> happens all the time and there's no discomfort with that for them. So I have to like adjust my expectations. Now, if there's something that really matters to me, I have to be really clear, like, you know, this is yeah. this is an expectation. This is family. We need you to be there. Whatever. But it's just a, a different time of life where planning is not important. It's just not necessary.
0: No, and it's so hard. And you know what's funny? I had this, I was really good about giving other families this latitude where we had friends whose kids were older and we'd be trying to plan a Friday or Saturday night dinner, and they'd be like, oh, I don't know if the kids are gonna be home. I don't, like, I'm not sure what we're doing. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, your kids could come if they want. I don't care if they come. I don't care if they don't come. You don't even have to tell me beforehand. And in fact- They can come and throw food down their throat and leave in 10 minutes, and I won't be insulted. Because I felt like it was giving my friends the latitude to say yes and not feel like they were, like, making their— like. And then they would say to their kids, like, you know, Silvermans don't care. You can come or not come. And I actually think they ended up coming more because they felt less pressure and didn't feel like we were holding them captive. But I don't think I was as good at it with our own— do you know what I mean? Like, I remember being really conscious of it with others and wanting to make others feel comfortable. But then when it came to Arizona, I'd be like, are you going to be home or are you not going to be home? Like, so, why is that? Why? I don't even know what that's about.
1: Again, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I don't have my PhD, but when I get it, I'll get back to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. You don't even need your PhD. Even just like a, yeah, and it's funny though. It is kind of a funny thing. Up next is our conversation with Dr. Jill Grimes. We can't wait for you to join us. Thanks so much for checking it out.
1: Dr. Jill Grimes is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians, sharing practical and evidence-based advice covering all ages, genders, and body parts. Dr. Grimes enjoys educating in and out of her exam rooms and shares her message across all media platforms, from print magazines and online forums to radio talk shows and television. Jill, thank you so much for being here with us. You know so much about college freshmen and their transition from high school to freshman year, and we don't. We're like always left in the dust, you know? Like the professionals know it, the teachers know it, the parents are like, what's happening here? So tell us what the top three things every college freshman needs to know. Your favorite things you have I know you have 10 right off the bat. Tell us your favorite three. Number one: social media
2: is not your friend the first semester. <laughs> there is so much transition when they first arrive at college, and the expectations are set so high that this is going to be what we always say, right? the best years of your life, and they get there and Maybe they don't like their roommate, or they don't find the right group of friends that fits with them at first, or they don't make their fraternity or sorority that they had always dreamed of being in. And they get there and they're feeling sad. And what do they do? They go on social media and they see, guess what? Everybody else is deliriously happy. Everybody else is happy because we don't post sad things on social media.
1: So there's other people looking at them and going, look, they're super happy. I want to jump in with that one because it's so hard to sit with discomfort. Like I think all of us have a hard time with that, but particularly our kids have such a hard time sitting with discomfort that the Band-Aid to the discomfort is the phone. So what do they do instead? Anything else, seriously. I mean, I don't care if they're playing a game on their phone or
2: it doesn't, you know, just because honestly, that is the default. It's it's their electronic pacifier, right? It's a self-soothing thing to be on the phone. And so if if they're going to be on the phone, pick something like, you know, Wordle. <laughs> pick pick a pick a game, pick something like that. But really what I wanna say is to limit social media. Not not that they don't ever go on it, although some people do better just saying, you know what, I'm gonna just not do it and they do great. But in general, you just don't want to be doing it at bedtime right before you go to bed because then you're musing on it. And also everybody knows that social media and, and everything on our phones is designed to have no end point. And so you end up much longer watching reels or TikToks or whatever. So I recommend spending, you know, saying, okay, if I'm going to do 10 minutes, three times a day, at my meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that's when I'm going to look at social media. So number one is that not everybody else is super happy when you're sad. It's just what's on there. So I wish that they all knew that. Number two, this is from all my professor friends, including my professor dad that I grew up with. Professors would be deliriously happy if all college students would commit to coming by in office hours in the first two weeks of each semester. This is true for freshmen. This is true for seniors, because what happens is students don't want to go in. That, oh, what am I going to say? I don't know what I'm going to say. But if they would just go in and introduce themselves, just introduce themselves. Maybe, you know, do do a, do a one Google on your professor and see that they're from. Maybe they're from a cool town or that they've researched something that you're interested in. It'd be nice to have a little something to throw out to say, hey, I saw that you're from Montana. My grandparents live there or, you know, who knows what. So that everybody goes by, meets their professors in the first two weeks of the semester so that if you have a problem down the road, the first time you go in is not when you're in distress. Mm, One, you'll be a lot more comfortable if you've already met them. Two, I I was having this conversation with my next-door neighbor, who's a professor, just a couple days ago. And she said, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm sure that I have some inherent bias towards, positively, towards these students that come by. You know, like when I'm in the classroom, she's like, I've never really thought about it before, but you know, those are the ones I know. So that's who I'm making a little more eye contact with. And you know, and so it, it ends up being a better learning experience all around. So that's the second thing that I wish every college student knew. Oh my gosh, the third, it's so hard for me to narrow it down to one more thing. But I can do this. Just because I think the number one anxiety is test anxiety, I'm gonna pick that for number three. What I want every college student to know is that one in five, 20% of college students have actual significant test anxiety. And I'm not talking about not being prepared for a test or not, you know, that whole, there's a whole transition to college where your study skills that worked in high school may not work at all in college. And this goes for the top of the class to the bottom of the class. But honestly, uh, yeah, that's, this is part of it. If I'm going to sneak in a fourth one, (laughs) that's that, that's that it's the smartest kid that gives the kids with the highest grades in the class go to tutoring. Okay, tutoring is not for, it is for people who are struggling, but it's not just for them, and the people who use it the most are the people who do the best in college. So I'm sneaking that one in there. But I just want people to understand that test anxiety, where you are prepared, you sit down, you're taking your test, you're on number three, and all of a sudden you, you hit one you don't know, and you get basically kind of a panic attack. You get shaky, your mouth may go dry, your heart's racing and you might get a headache or feel nauseous and your brain goes blank. And that is real test anxiety. And again, to varying degrees of that, one in five college students have this problem. And if you discover that this happens to you in college and it may have never happened to you before, or you may have been struggling with it since sixth grade, but either way, please talk with your doctor or your counselor about it. There are so many things that we can do to help starting with a whole bunch of behavioral modifications. And yes, breathing techniques is one of them. Everyone rolls their eyes when you say breathing techniques, but there are some that actually really work extremely well. But also occasionally we need to to actually prescribe medicine, medicines that just slow your heart rate down. They don't, they're not addictive. They don't make you sleepy. They don't do anything else. We're literally using them. They're a blood pressure medicine that we use at baby doses that just slow your heart rate down. And what happens is, when your heart rate is calm and you're not shaky, your brain's like, well, huh, if I'm not having those physical symptoms of anxiety, I guess I'm not that anxious. And then it helps you clear, your, clear that anxiety. And for so many students, it's life-changing for them if they were panicking every time they walk into freshman chemistry or
0: whatever class it is that, that's, that's giving them their big, scary moment. Those are great. I think I was just diagnosed with test anxiety at age 53. Pretty sure. Yeah, well, there you go. So those are great in terms of the students. Let's talk about the parents for a minute. So the summer after they graduate from high school, Mm -hmm. they're getting ready to go to college. What are things that you recommend the parents do that summer to help their college-bound kid get ready? Okay, so number one
2: is really easy, basic, but most people don't think about it. You can do this in 30 seconds. Take your phone, take your health insurance card, Mm -hmm. Your kid on their phone takes a picture front and back of the health insurance card and favorites it in their photos. And then same thing, take a picture of those pesky immunization records when you track them down. Because inevitably they're gonna fall and you know step on a nail or just get a, get a burn or something where we need to know when their last tetanus shot was. And most college students are kind of due for a tetanus booster. So they need to know when that was. So Number one is that. Just just have those critical pieces of, you know, they're your ticket into the doctor's office, have those in the phone so that you're not relying on having to get a hold of a parent and having them text it to you. And so that's number one. Number two is pretty similar to that. It's the whole doctor experience. As parents, who fills out all the forms every time you go to the doctor, right? Or dentist? A dermatologist ophthalmologist optometrist, wherever you're going, you know, there's that huge, you know, you get handed the clipboard with all the consents and then the insurance forms, how to fill it out. We've done it so many times that we can do it, but our kids usually have not had that opportunity. And if the first time that they're struggling to fill one of those out is when they've got 103 fever and chills, or they're throwing up, or they've just been in a significant bike accident and they you know they've got a cut and they're in pain or they've broken an arm and then they have to fill these out they melt down you know they hold it together until they hit that and then then they're panicked and if they can't get a hold of you because you're at work or whatever it's twice as bad so just have them schedule an appointment actually let them do the scheduling for whatever it is again orthodontist, you, know, you have to take those retainers with you to, to uh, college so that you put them in every once in a while. So that beautiful orthodontia that you did with the braces, that all still works. So have them schedule a dentist appointment, orthodontist, ophthalmologist, optometrist, family medicine doctor to get there, to make sure that their immunizations are up to date, have them schedule it, go with them, sit next to them, or at least be ready on your phone, have them drive themselves, whatever you want to do, and have them
1: fill out that form. Okay, so they need to make the phone call and they need to fill out the form. Yes. And so those those are very like practical tips if they are needing particular doctors, mental health, physical. How do we transition that to college? Like what's I mean, you don't want to send your kid off without the support they were getting at home, right?
2: Right. So there's sort of three different answers to that. Number one, now with telehealth, and and rules are changing right now, so we're not sure, doctors definitely would like, we'd all like to keep the ability to have telehealth and have it cross state lines, but that that doesn't work everywhere, so you can't count on that, but one, talk to your doctors and therapists um, and find out, can you do telehealth while they're in another state or maybe they're just in another city and it's not a big deal. As long as they're in the same state, a lot of doctors are comfortable with that and therapists, but crossing state lines may or may not be possible. The second thing is it really depends on the school that they're going to. If they're going to a big school like, let's say, the University of Texas that has a huge health center with multidisciplines, everything from sports medicine to psychiatry, women's health, all the different things, then they're probably going to be okay just when they get on campus to early before they're sick, make an appointment with in one of the general medicine clinics and just go in and establish with the doctor there and that doctor will be able to take over prescribing and most of their medications. Now, ADD meds, so attention deficit disorder medications are a definite carve out. There's a few school, I would say it's the minority of universities that I'm aware of at least that their college health center, that there are doctors there that will prescribe those medications. Part of that's because there's abuse, Part, you know, there's a lot of different reasons for it. It's a controlled substance. So with that, talk with your doctor who's prescribing it now, and then you may need to just, or you're actually, your student should reach out to the health center of the school that they're going to and just ask, do y'all prescribe this? and you'll get an answer. And if the answer is no, I would bet that they'll say, however, here's a list of five neurologists or family physicians or internists in our community that do feel comfortable with prescribing these medications, and you can try and set up an appointment with them. So that's a great question. Same thing with um, having them pick up a prescription at a pharmacy. A lot of times they get very nervous because They've just never had to do that before. And so it's good to have them go through the process, even if it's just an, you know, an allergy med or, I mean, most of those are over the counter now, so that's probably a poor example. But there's many routine medications that young people take, their asthma medications, inhalers and whatnot, have them do a refill and they're relieved to know that a lot of refills are, you don't even have to talk to a human being. You just, you know, you go on to Walgreens and, you know, you, you press in the code, but they need, th- they need to have done that once so that they're comfortable with it. It's also nice to have, if you have a pharmacy that is like Walgreens or CVS that's everywhere because they can transfer the prescriptions for you much easier.
0: What should we be clear to tell our kids in preparation? Like roommates, you know, a lot of these kids have had their own rooms. Now all of a sudden they have a roommate. You know, we know that there's a lot of ups and downs in college. What, you know, what what should we be telling our kids as we're getting them ready? There's several different directions we can go with this. Starting with the roommates
2: is they can't go in with the expectation that their roommate is going to be their best friend. Especially now with all the matching Roommates, I mean, they they may have a really good friendship with their roommate by the time they get there, or they may be going potluck and the person could be fabulous, or they could be someone who is very different than them. So, part of it is to set expectations that a lot of roommates are roommates. They don't do stuff together, they don't hang out, they're not best friends, and that's okay. It's also okay if you are, it's great if you are, but um, sometimes it's kind of nice to just have a roommate that you Live with, and that they are different from your friend group. Nice to have someone to bounce things off of. You know, that's outside of your friend group. So setting expectations about that. Basic stuff about hygiene is important. You know, you talk about how off, how often do you wash sheets, for example. It's a, it's a notorious thing. This is this is a sex bias, a gender bias thing, but. I hear more from boy moms that the only time their kids' sheets got washed was when they was when they went to visit them. This would easily be true of girls as well, but just talk about things like, well, what is an appropriate, you know, what is your family standard? Do you think sheets need to be washed once a week, once a month? Where are you at with that? Because things get smelly. Uh, speaking of smelly, this is a little side note, but I'm a big fan of packing several of the, the gel. Actually, I don't know if they're gel or what they are, but the solid room deodorizers, when you move into a dorm room, because unless it's a brand new dorm, dorms are just kind of smelly and it's nice to be able to put one in the closet and maybe one underneath that bunk bed where the shoes and dirty clothes are gonna go, because, and not, nothing, anything floral, nothing sweet smelling, just one of those that just absorbs the odors is really nice. Here's an illness one that's really important for students to know. Because every September there's a plumbing problem across America in universities. And do you know why? Because kids throw up in the sink. If you're going to throw up, oh, I'm sorry, gross. but it's it is gross, but it's true, and they just need to know don't throw up in the sink. Throw up in a trash can.
1: Tra- so we're trash gonna bags tell our kids so that like away. when you're drunk, don't throw up in the sink. <laughs> or have
2: food poisoning.
1: Or okay, have food we'll poisoning. Go with that it one. doesn't
2: it doesn't ha- it doesn't have to be drunk. But it happens more than you, you think. And it's literally a plumbing Ugh. problem
1: every September. So Gross. That's, that's just a basic. Homesickness. Not every yes. kid has it, but there are protective factors so that when they leave us, they have a, an easier time. What are they?
2: Yes. So lots of things that you can do to help mitigate homesickness. The number one thing is to start getting them looking forward and getting involved in their university before they even get there. So, I always suggest that you pick at least 3 clubs to join. What you may not stay in all 3, you may you may find three others. But bef- this summer, you know, go on the website of your college and look up all the clubs. You will be Honestly, you'll be flabbergasted how many clubs are. There's everything from Harry Potter Quidditch clubs to juggling clubs and circus clubs to food restaurant ones where they go and they try a different restaurant every week or make a recipe together. So I usually say pick something like, one thing that's maybe service because we know that volunteering and helping others is definitely something that helps with homesickness. When you're actively helping others, it helps you be less self-focused, so one, maybe one service club, one totally frivolous fun club, whatever your passion is. And then if they like sports, it's always nice to have an intramural club. And it can, it can be, and it doesn't have to be fiercely competitive or it can be. If you've got a high school athlete who is not, is going to a D1 school and they were just not, they couldn't be a D1 athlete, boy, make sure that they are hooked into the intramurals encourage them to look into that and see what all different intramurals that they can join. Is it a dorm thing? Is it just a club sport? Because they are going to miss that. They're going to miss the camaraderie. They're going to miss the routine of it. So the more that they can get involved, the less
1: homesickness there is. So that's one thing. Is there going to be a difference now for these kids post-COVID? Do you think that it's going to change for them and be a little harder or easier? You know, I think it's
2: gonna be both. I think for some kids who have just been chomping at the bit to get out of the house, it will be easier. I think it's gonna be a lot harder for introverts who have been, frankly, kind of comfortable with the COVID isolation. I know one of our kids is like that. And she's like, Oh, this is great. <laughs> I don't have to I don't have to be forced to be interacting with other people and you know, but so she got a little too comfortable staying in a room. So I think it is gonna be harder. And so, especially for kids like that, one option is to get a job. And that may seem like, wait, no, my kid's going to college. That is their job. Well, there's a lot of on-campus jobs that you can do for three, six hours a week is full-time for on-campus jobs in most universities. So I'm not talking about getting a 40-hour work week. I'm talking about three hours a week or six hours a week. And a lot of these jobs, it's like sitting somewhere at the front of a dorm or the front of a building, you're a receptionist, and you literally can sit there and do your homework. But it gives you you a place to go. You're interacting with other people, and you're making a little extra money, which is always nice too. But so consider getting a job. Look at dorm leadership. A lot of people overlook a position in a dorm. You know, there's always a dorm council if they're living in a dorm. A lot of those go unfilled freshman year because freshmen don't. They're like, oh, I don't, I don't wanna be involved in my dorm. I'm gonna be involved in my Greek system or I'm gonna be involved in choir or dance or, or I'm just gonna do school. And they just don't think about it. So look for some different opportunities like that where you're going to have scheduled meetings. You're going to kind of be forced to be involved. Those, those are good things to help prevent homesickness. Another thing is actually keeping a gratitude journal. And people are gonna be more or less receptive to this there's different ways to do it. One way is just to have, you know, a spiral notebook, old school, and once a day, either first thing in the morning or last, you know, last thing at night usually works for most people, you write down one thing that you're grateful for from the day before or, you know, from that day if you do it at night. Just one thing. And the more specific you can be the better. I always say like, you know, say you have a terribly messy roommate and you just can't think of a single thing to be grateful for. You can be grateful that they didn't leave their trash, didn't leave their leftover food out. You know, Sometimes it's a double negative. But most of the time, when you are making these gratitude journals, you'll, you'll find something that you actually are grateful for. And there's all kinds of studies that have shown that doing gratitude journals improve your mental health. So they are a good thing. One thing that, um, again, one of our daughters did was to do, it kind of became a family thing. She did a a family Instagram. Now this is, this was completely private. This is only our family could see this. You don't do this for likes, it's not a public thing. It was just easier for her rather than writing something down to just snap a picture of something each day and then she would write literally, you know, five words of something she was grateful for. But the nice thing was when she was, you know, halfway through the semester and had a really bad day, she had a visual thing she could literally flip through and see all the things she was grateful for and how things have been going well. And she actually ended up keeping that for all four years of her college experience and loves having that as a record. So gratitude journal is another thing that they could start this summer.
0: As parents, and I've done this a few times, you know, we always get the bills. <laughs> We're always invited oh, yes. to pay those. That that does not seem <laughs> to be a problem, getting, getting to us. Yeah, they could
2: communicate,
0: um, no problem. Yeah, that that's that, that's loud and clear. But in terms of getting other info about our kids, are there any, you know, I know that that, you know, you have to sign off on things um, or your kid has to give you permission. Are there any other workarounds for parents? Like how how do we do that? How do we get ourselves in that loop? So in the health world, you get your way in that loop by
2: doing two health forms. One is the HIPAA release form, and it's really nice to have that done ahead of time and for you to have a copy of it on your computer, as well as, uh, mainly as long as you have it, because you can always send it to your kid's phone. It's really, it's super frustrating for doctors and nurses, all medical staff as well, when we have a kid in our facility and the parent calls the facility because they've seen on you know, their find their phone app or whatever. They know that their kid is in the health center and they call and they say, oh my God, is my kid there? And we're not legally allowed to tell them even yes or no, which I, which always feels wrong to me, but that's, it is what it is. That's what the, the law is. So if you have this HIPAA form, you can say, I have this HIPAA release. Is my daughter there? And send it. And then, then they can say yes or no. So that's a form that can help. You also can do a medical power of attorney or a health power of attorney so that if your kid were, heaven forbid, unconscious in a hospital, that there would be no question. You would have the HIPAA release. You would have the power of attorney to, to make decisions. And there could be quick and easy communication. I mean, we're always going to go, as physicians, we're always going to go you know with, with parents first for a minor. But let me just tell you, having those forms speeds it up. And if I'm allowed to say, I, I use, personally for me, I used Mama Bear legal forms. I thought they were great. I thought they were well worth the money to save me the time. You can find these forms for free online, the, um, the HIPAA form especially, but that's where I got mine.
1: Okay, so this one's a rough one for me because we talk about risky behavior, particularly alcohol and drug abuse and use. And I've been on college campuses. I have five kids who've been in college. And I don't believe anything we're saying is is really working based on what I'm seeing when I'm there visiting them. So what is the conversation? Is it trying to get them to be responsible drinkers, drug users, is it to tell them don't do it? Like, How does the conversation become effective with our kids? All great things. So number one, I wanna start with
2: saying a third of college students do not, by choice, do not drink, have sex, or do drugs. So a third don't. It is not everybody. Now, that being said, in subpopulations, and I'm going to pick on the Greeks here because especially the frat guys, they party hard at most schools. And it's not everybody. And there are dry pledging where you where you don't drink alcohol at all. That's a choice. But that's it's hard to be one in a crowd that doesn't do whatever the choice is. So it kind of depends on your kid's friend group on what conver- how that conversation is going to go. There are certainly a lot of parents who are completely in denial, who think their children are little angels, and the reality is, you know, they've been partying all the way through high school. So one, it's not one conversation. It's a series of conversations. Two, I find humor is an effective way to talk with kids and telling stories. So there's some things that you can share with them. And... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a few things about pot right now, if that's okay. Can we kind of go there as part of this? So when I talk about pot, I do not ever say pot is bad, pot is good, whatever. That's not, that's not where I go. I just say, hey, if you're smoking it or vaping it or doing any way, if you're getting weed in your system in any way, there's just a few things you should know. And number one is if you didn't grow it, you don't know what's in it. And they, it always makes them laugh. They're like, what? I'm not telling you to go grow your own weed, okay? What I'm saying is that drug dealers who in states where it is not legal are all illegal drug dealers, right? By the nature of it. If you don't have legal dispensaries, any pot that you're gonna get, for example, in the state of Texas is from illegal drug dealers. If you didn't grow it, you don't know what's in it. So that's one thing I say. Second thing is about edibles. When you inhale a substance like pot you get or nicotine, so vaping also, when you inhale it, you get an immediate response. That's, that's why, part of why it's so addictive is because you get that immediate high from it, that buzz. With an edible, which by the way, are all designed to look like cutesy little gummy bears or chocolate or brownies. I mean, they look they look child, their packaging literally is, is childish. So they look super benign and people will eat one and they don't feel anything because it takes 30 minutes to an hour for that to be digested and kick in and to get the high that you're gonna get from it. So it's really important for them to know that because what happens to many is that they have one and 10, 15 minutes later, like, well, I didn't feel anything. I'll have another one and I'll have another one. And they might have several and then they're in big trouble because they've got way too much THC in their system and they're going to have a very unpleasant high and potentially dangerous. So with edibles, they need to understand one, and, and one bite of a whole thing, There's the THC is not even throughout evenly distributed. So it, it you, they're, they're dangerous. And it's really dangerous to do multiple bites because you don't realize that it takes a while to kick in. So I want them to know that about edibles. I want them to know that, there can, that the pot can be laced with stuff. And I want them to know that one in six teens will get addicted. And they'll say, oh, no, no, I know tons of people that that, that do it, and nobody's addicted. And that's great because five out of six don't get addicted. But one out of six teens does, and roughly one out of 11 adults does. So it can be addictive. And a lot of people who think they're going to smoke it casually end up self-medicating with it. They start saying, well, I'm using it because it calms me down. And then they get into a world of trouble because then they can't quit. And... It stays in your system a very long time. It stays in your urine for about three weeks, sometimes up to a month, depends how much and how often you're smoking, concentration and all of that. But think about getting an internship and then going in and getting drug tested. The saddest thing, and I see this every semester, is somebody coming in in a crisis situation because they're devastated because they knew they were gonna have a drug test, they quit smoking, a month beforehand, or they two weeks before they were pushing it because they had a hard time quitting and they used these products that say that it will clear your urine, and they went in and it wasn't a urine drug test; it was a hair drug test. It stays in your hair for three months. So I want kids to know all that ahead of time before they make a choice about whether or not they're going to smoke pot, and especially if they're going to a state where it's legal. Where at least if they're getting legal pot, you don't have to worry about it being laced with these other things, so that's that's a plus, but it's not nothing. it's not non addictive there are there are consequences to it, and I just want I want them to to know those consequences
1: person I might know who might <laughs> I not have known the <laughs> hair thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I never heard the hair thing, but I know someone who the internship thing happened to last summer. I remember being with the parents, they were like, "Oh shit." Okay, so, so we're going to wrap this up uh, the way we wrap up all of our podcasts, which is what is the biggest myth about high school seniors?
2: I think the biggest myth about high school seniors is that there's some kind of light switch that they go from being living in your house to suddenly they're a full-on adult and it happens overnight. It's a transition. They're not, they're not ready for everything, even though they look like an adult, sound like an adult, might be way bigger than you that doesn't mean that they're capable of making all adult decisions. That frontal cortex, the area where judgment occurs, doesn't finish developing until age 25. And so they're gonna screw up, they're gonna make mistakes, and we we can't expect them to be this perfect little adult when they leave. And so I think we have to have those expectations as well.
1: Dr. Jill Grimes, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. If you're interested in getting a free copy of Dr. Jill Grimes' book, The Ultimate College Student Health Handbook, send an email to editor at yourteenmag.com and you'll be entered into a raffle. Editor, E-D-I-T-O-R at yourteenmag.com.
0: Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article
1: and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate
0: the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team
1: with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see
0: you next time.